Man, we are building a bubble on top of a bubble on top of a bubble on top of a bubble, and I'm going to talk about it today. We either go into hyperinflation or the market's going to tank. One of the two things are going to happen. They are completely opposite results. I wish I could tell you which one it is, but unfortunately, I'm not a financial advisor and I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's not going to stop me from spewing my verbal diarrhea onto you guys today. First and foremost, before we get started, this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of my patrons, then I'm going to give you the two rules for the podcast and we're going to get well on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. It is the only place that I buy my gold and silver. Why, Chris, you ask? Because A, Well, a lot of people say, oh, you buy there because they support the podcast. It's actually not the truth. It was the other way around. They had approached me about potentially partnering with the podcast, and I said, let me try and place some orders from you guys. I'd never ordered from them before, so I did, and I was very happy with the way that they handled my orders. I had previously gone through Kitco and a couple other sites, and I left them in favor of JM Bullion because they turn around my orders quicker. They always seem to me to have a better inventory. They're very nice people to work with. It's easy to pay them. The packaging is discreet. They get uh, the items to you in, uh, in a relatively short amount of time. And QTR podcast listeners get personalized service from Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. If you want to order from JM Bullion, there is a link in my podcast description. If you want personalized service, reach out to Laura, tell her that QTR sent you, and uh, she will help you out so you don't have to navigate the website, and you can actually talk to a person, which you can't do at any businesses nowadays. I know that because I just tried to get one on the line at my bank. And it didn't work, and it left me cursing. And then eventually, by the time they get on the phone, you just fucking hang up on them because you're so annoyed. And that's exactly what happened. So that's a different story for a different day. But JM Bullion, been in business for 10 years. They've done over $3 billion in sales. My favorite gold and silver provider. Check them out through the link on the podcast description or email the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. This podcast also brought to you by Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus and one of my favorite pieces of software, on the street. It is second to none. It's called the Steam Room, and it gives you deep insights into where money is moving behind the scenes in the options market. It is a masterful tool in helping you read market sentiment, market psychology, really where the steam, right? Where the money is coming in. Because a lot of times, If you're going to be a paper chaser, sometimes you literally have to fucking chase paper in the market. That's just how it works. Somebody got the scoop before you, but it doesn't mean that necessarily you can't make money on the deal. And so the steam room helps highlight all of these potential opportunities. The Sang Lucci steam room, you will get a 30-day free trial for being a QTR podcast listener and using the link in my podcast description. Reach out to Lucci. Tell him I sent you. Reach out to Wall Street Jesus. I love those guys and they love me back. They're great people to do business with. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro, which is one of my favorite online forums and online services. If you look at the economy the way that we do through a macro lens and you're a podcast listener but maybe you want less dick and fart jokes and more actual analysis, a great place to start would be George Gammon's Rebel Capitalist Pro. He has partnered with Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh 
uh, two people with great track records that are well-known in the industry. They do weekly question and answer sessions for all members. They have an online forum. They post their portfolios online, so tons of reading and material and ideas and things to keep up with. And plus, it's cheap. I think it's like you know $39 a month or something for Rebel Capitalist Pro. So, uh, and George will give you a free uh, couple months trial. If you want to try it out, tell him the Q-Man sent you. I'm sure he'll get you taken care of. That link is in my podcast description. Just reach out to him. This podcast also brought to you by my favorite investing community, day trading community. That would be the Trader's Path, run by my dear friend Pete Hedges, Liverpool supporter, red wine drinker, trader extraordinaire, very nice gentleman, longtime supporter of the podcast. This guy called me like, Two years ago, he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to support the podcast for like two months. Here we are two years later. You got to give it up to Pete, man. He runs this great platform called The Trader's Path, which he started because he didn't like other trading services, like some that have recently been sued by the Federal Trade Commission. He was actually working for one of those guys, said, I don't want to do this shit anymore. It doesn't feel right. I'm going to start my own podcast or my own uh, fucking trading service. Maybe he's going to start a podcast too. (laughs) (laughs) You do have the right to be an attorney. But he started his own uh, investing service called The Trader's Path. The link to that's in my podcast description. Check him out, man. Give Pete a play. He's a wonderful human being. This podcast also brought to you by Corvus Gold, Investors Underground Traders for a Cause, Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy, Jay Mintzmeyer, shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul. Thank you. And how about some of my longest-running podcast supporters like M motherfucking three max mulvahill since february 2018 i i actually max mulvahill started supporting the podcast the same month that i started training jujitsu so now i know that i've been training jujitsu for three years and three months and max mulvahill's been a supporter for three years and three months so that's how i keep track of that mark haywood kyle thomas chris b darius kordonsky chris gerard and sheer luck Thank you for your continued support. And some of my newest patrons, Jacob Lowry, I see you, brother. James Haas, thank you for checking in, my friend. Eric Bartlein and GNP, I see you. Bordoni, thank you for your podcast uh, fucking thing, whatever I'm talking about. Justin Wilson, I have no idea what I'm doing, folks. Matthew Allen, Bill Brewster, Jim Thomas, Doug Briner. And let's just shout out a couple people that may have fallen through the cracks over the years. As soon as I sneeze. Do I have to sneeze? No, I don't. This is an exciting podcast, isn't it? How about Andre Gavirlov and Alex Geyser? What's up? Doug Brimer and Tom Smalley. Bad Daddy Publishing's in the house. My man Chris. IntelliTrade app is still supporting me. Jim Thomas and Andrew Washko and Brett and Dylan Davis in the Flow Algo. What's up, brothers? Hot Butter and John Edwards. Kenneth Zvielan and Lisa Hyatt. Mark Jektovich. Matt Tackett and Matthew Cleat. Mike, Pete Yarborough, Shane Yeakley, Toby Wilson, Jeff Barnes. Fuck me. Let's get started. This podcast has a two-drink minimum, and I am not a financial advisor, in case you can't tell from this first six minutes of bilge that I have just released upon the poor, poor people of the internet. I hold no licenses, no registrations, and this is not financial advice. Please don't listen to anything that I have to say. With that being said, I strongly believe that we are on the precipice of a giant problem, and You know, to be honest with you, since the beginning of COVID, I haven't really been talking about, you know, just general doom, right? If you're a bear or you're a skeptic or you're somebody that, you know, wants to 
talk shit about a company with $500,000 in revenue per quarter and a $6 billion market cap, that I guess somehow makes you some kind of asshole in this market. That's how skewed the market is right now, thanks to central banks. We'll get on to that later. But for the most part, for the last like 18 months, I've taken a pretty realistic view of things. And not for nothing, but you know, back in March of 2020, when the S&P was getting smacked, and I think it was down to like 2,300, and the Fed had just announced their QE, I said, get ready for a raise to 4,000 between the SPY and gold. And of course, the SPY won that race. And while a lot of people were saying, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna need to see a double bottom here, I said, fuck the double bottom. The Fed launched unlimited quantitative easing. The Fed's not interested in making sure that your technical indicators on some chart somewhere get fulfilled. They're interested in keeping rates low and flooding the market with infinite money, which, by the way, if you've been living in a cave for the last 30 years, you haven't noticed that those are really the only two tools that they have and the only two solutions that they employ, no matter what the problem is. It's it's like having the uh, solution X equals six, and anybody throws you any different set of math problems, including one that's just like, hey, is this a picture of a rhombus or a trapezoid? And you just say X equals six. You only have one answer, no matter what the problem is. And that's what the Fed's got going on. They've got one answer, and it doesn't really matter what the problems is. And now they're trying to convince the market and convince really the world that they've got this thing under control when it comes to inflation potentially running rampant, which I noticed Mohammed Al-Aryan didn't even believe. You know, when Mohammed Al-Aryan's out there, and basically... You know, what Muhammad Al-Aryan said on Squawk Box yesterday was, well, I would caution the Fed, you know, to make sure that... Let me see if I can find the actual quote. Because it was it was like a measured, kind of like watered-down criticism. But, uh, you know, Muhammad Al-Aryan's like one of the most well-known bankers in the world. And he's got, an, you know, an incredible track record. And he's just... Uh, he said, the Fed is pinning itself in a corner by insisting that this is transitory, said Mohammed El-Aryan on inflation pressures. All the evidence suggests that you should have an open mind. To which I replied, this is about as close as Mohammed El-Aryan can come to saying, you're all just full of shit. Which is really the case. He can't because, you know, he's a classy individual and he's got a resume and he works in the banking sector and he wears a suit. But I think he's on to something. I think what's happening is you're seeing Mohammed Alarian kind of being as outspoken as he can be while still remaining, you know, the president of Queens College and at Cambridge University and an advisor to Alliance and a Wharton professor and a Lauder Institute senior fellow and a Bloomberg and FT columnist. I mean, when you have all those things on your resume, you can't just come out and say, you guys are full of shit on national television. You have to couch it. A certain way and you have to wear a tie but I bet you anything after a couple of fucking beers old Mohammed would tell you hey I don't think these guys have any fucking clue what they're doing and I know that I might have hit a nerve on that because as soon as I tweeted that this is as close to Mohammed Alarian can come to saying they're just full of shit Mohammed Alarian followed me on Twitter <laughs> which means that must have rung true for him a little bit so going back to what I was saying, look, during the pandemic, I took a, uh, you know, a realist point of view. And the realist point of view is that, yes, well, over the course of the long term, 
everything is generally going to be doomed, and we are going to be facing some major problems that I'll talk about. Despite that, there are going to be periods of time where the market is just going to rip, and there's going to be nothing that we can do about it, and there's going to be it's going to have nothing to do with the underlying economy because the central banks will have simply just goosed whatever variables need to be goosed in order to make stocks go up. Whatever they have to do to make sure that the number, the Dow number, the S&P number goes up and not down, whatever they have to do, whether they need to go in and collectively start buying chocolate frosted donuts from Dunkin' Donuts across the country, we're going to be spending $5 billion on donut purchases, new new style of asset purchases. We need to simulate that even though people aren't going to work in the morning and buying their morning donut, that we need to do that for them. And we think that if we can print the money to do this, that that will be indicative of a growing economy as measured by the number of donuts consumed on an average Monday through Friday basis. Like, that's some kind of dumb shit that they would do, right? Get one guy to dig a ditch and the other guy to fill it in and say, hey, we got plenty of jobs out here. Yeah, but what's going on? You're not generating any productivity. Doesn't matter as long as the stock market goes up. So that's what we've been seeing over the last year. We've been seeing the stock market completely detached from the economy. Completely. We had 10 million people unemployed. And a lot of sectors came raging back before, I mean, in my opinion, before there was really solid evidence uh, that we would be reopening the way that I think we're going to this year. Regardless, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the Fed is going to do whatever they need to do to get those numbers moving higher so that we can give the impression of productivity even though there really isn't much productivity in the country. The stock prices going up give the impression of productivity. Further widening the wealth gap, people that own financial assets and you know the billionaire class right, that the left likes to rail against, the people that have started these major enterprises like Tesla and Amazon, the stockholders of these major enterprises, they're all getting much richer because as the Fed supports the stock market, it's a huge boon for people that have tons and tons and tons of financial assets, and yet it puts more inflationary pressure on the people that don't have financial assets. So if you are literally scrounging through your ashtray to get a couple extra quarters so you can make $1.29 for your morning coffee, you're the person that's really getting screwed the most by this type of irresponsible monetary policy. And what happens is, you know, as consumer prices start to rise, which they're going to, and by the way, too, let's just say this, you know, CPI, 2%, 1%, inflation has been like 8 to 10% per annum. There's no question about it. Let's just take a moment here and we'll all just meditate together. You ready? Hmm. Hmm. And we're all going to get on the same wavelength and we're going to have a giant spiritual awakening all together, collectively, as a society, that the Fed's CPI numbers are bullshit. They are just bullshit. Between the hedonic adjustments and the picking and choosing of things, the Fed's numbers are bullshit. And I've been saying this for a while, and this wasn't even, you know, this isn't a QTR original. I've heard guys like Peter Schiff say this. Go and buy a, you know, check a fucking TV guide from five years ago. What did it cost you, and what does it cost you? Do they even have TV guide anymore? Check out a magazine. What does it cost you? 
versus what it cost you five years ago. Look at your health insurance. What does it cost you versus what it cost you five years ago? Annualized. How much are prices rising? And make sure that you take into account shrinkflation. What is shrinkflation? I'm going to tell you right now because I just landed on a great example a couple days ago. And I know I've talked about this a million times. But uh, I noticed that smart food, the popcorn, you know, the the uh, the cheddar cheese, the white cheddar cheese popcorn that they make, it comes in the black popcorn bag. I noticed that they had put out a new popcorn. It's called Smart Food 50. You know, it's supposed to be the lighter version of the popcorn, which I guess is going to compete with Skinny Pop and all these other uh, popcorn brands that come out, you know. It's only 70 calories per bag. You know, it's like, great, that's on the packaging, and then you take the whole thing and eat all 20 bags that are in it. And you're, eat, you're consuming the same 1,400 calories that uh, that you'd be consuming if you just sat down and ate a block of cheese, which was your normal plan. But that's another episode for another day. So the Smart Food 50 package uh, sells for $3, uh, two for six at my local grocer. And the regular popcorn also sells two for six, $3 each. So I don't really even think there's a premium. I think it's just two for six, $3 each. And so I went to look and they were right next to each other. And I said, oh, all right, cool. Well, here's the new product. It's selling for the same price. And I looked at the weight. And I think the original smart food popcorn bag was 10 ounces. And this one was eight ounces. Now, does it look the same? Yes, it does. It looks the same size, right? The bags are exactly the same size, but you're getting less content on the inside. That's what shrinkflation is. Shrinkflation is when your toothpaste tube gets one millimeter smaller than it was, you know, two or three years ago, but maybe the price stays the same as you don't notice. Or when some of these companies decide to hike prices by 10 cents and they also, you know, cut back on the size a little bit, well, then they're coming in kind of from both angles. And of course, my favorite, my absolute favorite is giving you what appears to be the bigger bag but then, you know, doubling the price, giving you giving you 1.5 times the, the previous amount and doubling the price. And you can see this in things like the M&M peanuts that, you know, you can't even buy, by the way, a normal bag of M&M peanuts anymore. You can only buy the king size. King size is the regular size now. But there's a size after king size. It comes in like a little like like purse almost. And, uh, and what you used to be able to do and I remember growing up, would you be able to buy the big bag of M&M peanuts, like the industrial size, which was like enormous? I think you could still buy them, you know, and I think that was like five or six bucks. Now you buy this little purse, this little M&M purse, which I think you know, it's really the equivalent, I think, of maybe just like two two king size uh, fucking, uh, you know, things, two king size little packages together. And uh, and it's like seven or eight bucks. Like, you know where you can find these sizes too that I'm talking about? It's like Walgreens. If you walk into like a Walgreens and you go down that candy aisle, they have all these like weird sizes in between the traditional candy bar packaging size and the big fucker that was like, you know, the, the huge one that you could just like empty into a bowl. Go in and check out some of those middle of the road sizes and look at the weight the amount, the, the net weight of product that you're getting in them and divide it by the price and see what you're paying per ounce uh, versus what you pay for the smaller ones. Because, and of course, like the wonderful, fantastic person I have with, you know, I am rather with no life at all. I spent time doing this at one point, like a year and a half ago. And, uh, 
you know, that, that's what's going on. You guys are going out to the bar and things like that on a Friday night. I'm in Walgreens doing calculations on candy bars and then getting mad about it too, you know? Probably fucked my whole Friday night up, walked out. Like, I've had fuck Jerome Powell, you know? <laughs> the point of the matter is shrinkflation is happening. Inflation is happening. The markets are soaring. There doesn't seem to be anything that's going to prevent them from soaring. But fucked if we don't need a real recession at this point. If we don't need some somebody to really tap the brakes right now for a couple of reasons. And then and then after that I'll talk about, you know, where this I where they think where this whole mess is going to lead us. Thanks not only to the money that the Fed has injected in the system, but also the euphoria that they are responsible for helping create in the market. We have a litany of companies in this market that are worth precisely fuck all. I would say less than zero. I would say there's a a number of them that, in my opinion, are worth less than zero. A couple of them I tweeted about over the last couple of days. For example, I'll talk about Microvision for a second, which is a, you know, supposedly a LiDAR company that supposedly has, uh, you know, some intellectual property, which... Uh, I have read and have spoken to uh, patent attorneys that believe uh, very strongly that their portfolio is worth nothing. Uh, This is not financial advice. Uh, I'm just giving you my thoughts on the situation. All just opinion here. This is a company that did $600,000 in revenue last quarter. Or four hundred. dollars Let me find the fucking thing. Where is it? This company did... $479,000 in revenue in Q1 and posted a $6.2 million net loss, okay? If that was your business, if you owned a taco stand and you put those numbers up, you would just quit. That would be it. You'd file for bankruptcy the next day. You'd be like, Q1? I mean, that's the opposite of making money. You would have done better. You would have been $6.2 million better by just sitting around and doing nothing. Just sitting around doing nothing. Because then you're not burning through $6.2 million. Go out, spend $100 to open an LLC, and then just sit in a room and think about LIDAR for a whole quarter. Just think about it. You don't have to put pen to paper. You don't need research and development. Just sit there. What do you cost me for the quarter? Maybe $500 to keep the fucking electricity on and a couple hundred dollars to register the LLC? I mean, you would be $6.1 million better than the quarter that this company just had, right? This company has a 2.2 billion dollar market cap all right what is a market cap market cap is a collective sum of what the fucking thing is worth so when people say all right dogecoin's market cap is 60 billion dollars that is the sum of all issued and outstanding dogecoins uh as they are currently priced right so what does it mean that this company has a 2.2 billion dollar market cap and is you know posted a net loss of 6.2 million last quarter and has a $592 million accumulated deficit. What does that mean? What's an accumulated deficit? This is an important one to know. An accumulated deficit is the total amount of losses that a company has posted throughout the course of its lifetime. So over the course of this company's lifetime versus, you know, making money versus posting a profit versus retained earnings, whatever you want to say. But over the course of its lifetime, this company has lost $592 million. That means it has been a cash incinerator. It's a burden. It's a, it's a negative yielding asset. It's not even, you know, and people say, well, you know, a lot of, sometimes companies have to post losses before they can post gains. Yeah. 
Some companies are like that, right? Other companies are just piles of shit. You know, not not every company is going to have that Amazon pivot point where they turn on the profit machine. I mean, you have to have a product or a service to do that, right? You need to be doing something that's in demand. Not everybody's going to, you know, have that inflection point where they uh, cross the chasm and all of a sudden turn into this cash-generating behemoth. And if you don't do that, well, then you're just a company that's racking up losses. And if the market is assigning you a $2.2 billion valuation and all you do is post losses, well, what's the delta there between what you're actually worth intrinsically and what the market's valuing you at? You guys can make up your own decision at home, but with a name like this, I would say the difference is $2.2 billion. And this this name has been you know has come up because Wall Street bets are pumping it a lot and they're using it as a trading vehicle and people are in the options and it's just basically being manipulated. You have a small group of people that don't understand it. You have a small group of people that don't give a fuck and just want to you know manipulate the uh, the stock. They just want to pump it higher. Whatever, no problem. It's fine. And if you're in the stock or you like it or you don't like it, I don't care. I wish you the best. The point I'm trying to make is that this is one example, okay? This company has $0.49 a share in cash. It trades at about $16 a share right now. And the difference between the cash on the balance sheet and the price that the market's giving it is nothing. It's a big, fluffy, you know, it's it's the icing inside of a Twinkie. There's nothing there. It's an air pocket. It's a, what does he say in the Wolf Wall Street? It's a who's he what? It's a fucking, it's a, it's a fugazi. It's a fugazi. It's a, you know, it, it's nothing, what does he say to my cousin Vinny? He's like, you turn that card sideways, you'll see it's as thin as this playing card. It's like that, you know? On the surface, it looks like there's a lot of promise, but really, all we've been doing is posting huge losses. So the market is replete with names like this. Now, this one is a decent example because it's a play from the EV space, right? So there were all of these boons over the last, I don't know, year and a half while everything was ripping back tech came back and then you know the EV space became a hot name uh, a hot space a hot industry so anything that was associated with batteries or EVs you know just was just you know ripe for people to chase with hot money and unsophisticated investors to chase it that don't understand what a cash flow statement is and they don't know how to read financials and they've never opened a 10k those are the people in there buying it those are the people in there buying you know all these other names and so normally what a recession would do or normally what a market correction would do is it would send a signal to those people that you guys fucked up, right? And it would and it would take back some of that malinvestment. It would rope in some of that valuation. But since we're not having a market correction at all, and the market has done nothing but go straight up over the last 18 months, all we're doing is hitting this like peak fucking terminal velocity and basically just going parabolic and like, and, and getting to this fever, fever, fever bubble pitch where we're just pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And there's bubbles on top of bubbles. It's not just it's not just stocks. It's not just EV stocks. You know, the bubble is everywhere now. It's in cryptos. There's so much hot money. It's in non-fungible tokens. You got people buying fucking virtual real estate in places that don't even exist. And they're spending hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on it. Like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? So the Fed does this awful disservice, not only by widening the wealth gap and by fucking up the works in general, but by preventing, you know, a much needed 
correction. And so what happened over the last, and that's why you see things like Bill Huang, right? Bill Huang's blow up happens because you push it and you push it and you push it until all of a sudden one morning you wake up and you can't fucking push it anymore. And that happens. You test your luck and you test your luck and you test your luck. You know, you're poking a guy at the bar and you poke him and you poke him and you poke him. And then finally he turns around and just fucking clocks you and lays you out. And then, you know, it's like probably like a couple years before you get drunk and do something stupid like that again, depending on your particular learning curve. For me, it may have been less than several years. But the point is, at some point, something has to give. And if we don't allow something to give in a somewhat orderly fashion, then the market is just going to decide today's the day. And then the whole market's going to get whanged. The whole market's going to get whanged, not just whang. I mean, what the fuck was this guy doing, by the way? What was he doing? There was a good article this morning on uh, Zero Hedge, which I am going to find the title of right now so that you don't have to if you would like to follow along and play at home. And if not, fuck off. I'm going to read it to you anyways. It's called Bill Huang's Blow Up Begs Questions About the Next China Hustle in Its Wake. And the article basically talks about Why did Bill Huang own all these names that had been accused of fraud? Which is a great question. You know, that was one... When the GSX implosion was happening from 110 down to 30, a lot of people, myself included, thought, all right, well, this is it. Deloitte's not signing off on the audit or the regulatory intervention's coming. Before we knew that the market was getting Huang, we didn't know. We didn't know Huang was blowing up. We didn't know. We just knew something funky was going on in these names. And... This article just points out that not only did he own GSX, but he also owned IQ, which I think had been written about by Muddy Waters. And he also owned Vip Shop, which I remember years ago had been written about by uh, JCAP and also by, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think maybe Citron, I think, did that one as well. Um, And these were all names that, like, for years, you know, even if I didn't read the reports, I knew amongst the short sellers that I talked to and the market skeptics that I talked to were names that I didn't really want to be involved in, which for the most part is most Chinese names with the exception of one or two. But uh, but certainly GSX, you know, seems to be the one that's out in the open that everybody kind of already acknowledges, you know, like what is this thing still doing on the exchange? But this guy had these things in his portfolios and basically the article lays out whether or not he was trying to goose the value of his underlying equity in these names by buying call options. And I don't think that there is evidence of that. And I'm looking for it here in the article. I'm just going to read it a little bit. Um, Some of the names Huang was in, like GSX, for example, also saw intense call buying over the span of months after being targeted by short sellers, likely helping drive up the equities price by several multiples of itself in what was an obviously unnatural fashion to all observers. And that's true. I mean, if you remember, after the Muddy Waters GSX report came in, there were these huge call buys in the 80s and 90s and 110s and 70s and long dated stuff, the same kind of crap that we saw before Tesla's rise higher. And so that preceded GSX going crazy. And then, of course, you had the short squeeze on top of that. Not unlike the pump in MVIS, it was fun while it lasted, but the fucker's back at $26 now. I mean, it always, 
the tide always goes out and you always see who's swimming naked at the end of the day. The article says, it is unconfirmed whether or not Huang played a part in these options purchases in these questionable names, but now it at least appears that some of Huang's stock selections have caught the eye of the media. For example, the South China Morning Post couldn't help but notice that uh, Archigos was loaded up with investments in Chinese companies that have been accused of fraud. The article asked whether or not Huang's blow-up was the conclusion to the unfinished story that was laid out in the China Hustle, a documentary about exposing U.S.-listed China-based fraudulent companies, which is a great question. Now, was Bill Huang just a believer in these names? Hey, these ones got beaten down by these evil short sellers, and I think that, you know, these companies are great, and I've done my due diligence. Or did he own these names, specifically IQ and VIP Shop and GSX, did he own them for a different reason would be a good question. And while we're sitting back and, you know, the the run in GSX was taking everybody's surprise and everybody knew it was unnatural, everybody that watched it, especially people that had done the research on the company, they just, you know, those people can't even believe it's still listed, let alone that it 4X'd in, you know, uh, 12 months or whatever. But if you were watching that, you knew something unnatural was happening at the time. And we just didn't know what. Well, here, this might be your look behind the scenes as to what was happening. And I don't know if Wang had anything to do with it or if it was nefarious at all. But it's certainly interesting that this guy was building what the SCMP calls a delicately balanced bomb of a portfolio that eventually detonated. And uh, and then, of course, the article also notes that several of his names like D-I-S-C-A, which is uh, Discovery, and Viacom uh, mysteriously rose higher at aggressive clips. Was Huang in the options market in these names? That's a great question. And how is the options market being manipulated to manipulate equities? That's a bigger, broader regulatory question that we're going to need the answers to post-haste because it feels like it's becoming a strategy based on what's happened over the last 18 months, especially not just in names like Tesla and GSX, but also uh, in indices. I mean, this is essentially what happened to the NASDAQ, right? And SoftBank came out and admitted that they were in there buying you know, tech calls. And Goldman, I think, at one point came out and admitted that they were buying Tesla calls or you know, in NASDAQ calls. I can't remember. So it's basically a strategy. So if, you know, if Gensler wants to come in, and I have high hopes for Gensler, other people don't share my optimism, but I do have high hopes for him. If he wants to come in and start regulating something, that would be a good place to look. How is the options market being manipulated to affect the underlying price of equities? So in essence, you go out, you put on a you know $100 million position in an equity, and then you just drop a million dollars into out-of-the-money call options, which essentially becomes a cost of doing business. The market makers that sell you the contract have to go in and buy the equity, especially if there's a large short interest. That can oftentimes trigger a rally in the equity, which then you can mark your book up on with your underlying position. It's quite nefarious. It's quite gnarly. And I'm quite certain, my opinion only, I'm quite certain, my opinion only again, that it had something to do with Tesla just fucking hitting the stratosphere over the last 24 months. Again, Go back and pull that 10-year chart of Tesla. It's doing nothing. It's gaining a little. It's falling a little. It's up. It's down. It's up. It's down. It's up. It's down. 
pretty much in a straight line. All of a sudden, one day, clang, there it goes, fucking straight to the moon. And that's not normal. That just doesn't happen for no reason unless there are, I mean, it hasn't in the past unless there are traditionally financial reasons, you know, increased growth prospects, more cash generation, or some type of reason to justify it. You don't just 10X a $60 billion stock for the fucking fun of it. But it might be a combination of call buying and uninformed investors and the Fed spraying everything with cash. I'm sure that's not helping things along. But at some point, these bubbles on top of bubbles, and and, and Huang's not going to be the only one that we see go off. There's going to be more. I mean, we talk about that company before, and, and I say that there's a $2.2 billion market cap. That's, that is $2.2 billion just sitting out there waiting to go poof. Poof. Bye. You know, when a crypto called Cum Rocket has a $100 million market cap, that's $100 million just sitting out there waiting to go poof and disappear into thin air. Poof. Dogecoin, $60 billion in Dogecoin. What happens when the inevitable race to the exit happens? Poof. Another $60 billion up in the air. So then the question becomes, how many assets, not just crypto, not just stocks, how many assets have seen their valuation pull so far away from what they're worth? I mean, if you have a property, if the value of my condo goes to zero, at least I can still come back here and live in it. You know, if gold goes to zero, at least it's still going to have some demand somewhere as a commodity, right? But what happens when a company, you know, and when you buy stock, Warren Buffett will tell you, you're buying the sum of the company's future cash flows discounted, right? So you're buying a cash flow stream. Just like when you buy a house and you want to rent it, you're buying it for the yield. You're buying it for the income that it can generate. But when you buy a money-losing company that does nothing but rack up $592 million in losses, and you buy a cryptocurrency based on a meme of a cartoon dog that is in an asset class that didn't exist 13 years ago that is replete with other cryptos and does nothing and serves no function, what are you doing? What are you buying? You're just buying something that is set up to go poof. So the big question is, what's the sum total of those assets that are worth nothing? And a lot of these companies, I say often, they're worth less than zero. When I talk to my friends about them, I'm like, that company's worth less than zero. Because not only is it just burning cash, and not only is the balance sheet usually insolvent, and if it isn't, they're going to need share sales to raise cash to run the business anyways. But there will be administrative costs to disbanding these business and filing bankruptcy. It's a drain on the system. It's a drain on, you know, resources. It would be better if they just disappeared, many of these companies. But you're not even going to get a semblance of that until the market corrects even ever so slightly. And so, you know, the last couple of days, we've seen a tiny pullback in the NASDAQ, tiny, but it haven't even begun to scratch the surface. It, you know, the, these exchanges are replete with names like Lordstown, who claim to have 100,000 orders, 100,000 pre-orders, and there's nothing there. They're LLCs with letters of intent, things like that. All that is is just value just waiting to go poof. Money just waiting to go poof. And all of these things are collectively going to go poof. 
together at some point. The question is when. And then the question is when that bill comes due, bang, it's crypto and it's all the EV stocks and it's all the SPACs and it's this and it's that and it's the other frauds and it's China and bang and bing and bang and boom. What does that amount to? What is it? Five trillion? Is it 10 trillion? How much can we bear? How much becomes systemic? All questions we need to be asking ourselves. You know, one of the arguments against crypto that a lot of people make and that I've made myself is that there's an unlimited amount of crypto out there. There is an unlimited amount of coins that you can invest in. And, you know, the crypto guys will say, well, Bitcoin's the godfather and the cream will rise to the top and this and that and the other. And it's a good thing and it's a free market and it's decentralized and this and that and the other. Okay. But we're seeing something interesting here over the last couple of days, which appears to be, to me, at least before I started doing this podcast, there appears to be some kind of rotation out of Bitcoin and into Ethereum. Ethereum has been kicking major ass over the last like week. And, uh, and as such, Bitcoin, and I'm looking at the, uh, the chart today, looks like it was down about $3,000 um, at the time of doing this podcast today to about $54,000 per Bitcoin. And Ethereum was raging. Uh, Ethereum, I think, blew past 3500 today. Um, and so you're seeing kind of a rotation, what it looks like out of one crypto asset and into the other. And I use the term asset lightly. So that just makes the point, though. That makes the point. Everybody that's saying that, oh, Bitcoin is, you know, going to the moon and Bitcoin's going to be the only one. You know, look, we've got the age of quantum computing ahead of us. We've got all these other cryptocurrencies that are going to come out. You know, there will be competition, BlackBerry was the first to make the smartphone. They didn't quite make it over the course of the long term, right? MySpace was the first to do social networking. They didn't quite make it over the course of the long term. Although I think they wound up selling at the, at the right moment to uh, some idiot who bought them for like $650 million. But the point is just because Bitcoin is first and it looks good now, it looks unstoppable, it looks unbreakable, it looks foolproof. We don't really know. We don't know how it will survive amidst a growing array of competition and the age of quantum computing. Two of the many unknowns uh, that I've discussed numerous times about Bitcoin uh, and things just to keep in mind. And I think that the rotation into Ethereum kind of makes part of the point. They're like, all right, well, you know, it's not dethroning Bitcoin, but I saw analysts out today saying that, you know, Ethereum could go to 10,000 and that it's, you know, the better asset because it's easier to transact. And then somebody will improve upon Ethereum. And then somebody will improve, improve upon Litecoin. And somebody will improve upon, you know, all the coins that are out there. And then eventually, I, I don't know what we do. I mean, do we just trade them like stocks? Do we trade them like securities? I mean, I, I still, you know, they're not providing any utility still. And I've made a number of my concerns about Bitcoin um clear, not the least of which is we don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. And if it turns out to be the Chinese government, and I'm just using that as an example, I'm sure we'll look at it very differently. And also he, she, or it happens to hold a shitload of Bitcoin. So if the thing goes to a fucking hundred trillion dollar cap, uh, you know, they will basically have the entire global economy in their clutches, whoever this mystery person is. Pompliano tweeted the other day, 
Satoshi Nakamoto should win the Nobel Peace Prize. To which I replied, LOL, to which my friend Spencer Schiff said to me, you know, what's so funny about that? And I said, well, we could start with the fact that we don't know who the fuck he is. What if Satoshi Nakamoto is actually like a previous felon with, uh, you know, a, a history of manslaughter? What if Satoshi Nakamoto was a government that's been accused of crimes against humanity? You know, we don't know who he is. Let's not hand out the Nobel Peace Prize, okay, after 13 years. Let's get a little bit more of a track record uh, under our belt and, and maybe try to figure out who the fuck he is first before we give him the goddamn Nobel Peace Prize, right? We don't even know how Bitcoin is going to integrate into the global financial system if and when it will on a fully, you know, accepted and regulated basis. And they want to give him the Nobel Peace Prize. It's like, why? Because he made you a millionaire? Because you bought some shit and then somebody else paid you more for it and now they're hoping somebody else will pay them more for it? I don't know. It's, we should hand out a uh, Nobel Peace Prize to everybody that sent me a chain letter when I was a kid. You know, put $5 in here and send the fucker to five other people and, you know, you'll have immense riches come your way. Okay. Love Satoshi Nakamoto. And I've said, look, I think Bitcoin could be a useful part of the financial system. I think it could be at a point where it's too big to fail now. Um, certainly smart people that I know that I talk to make the argument, not only that Bitcoin, but also that Tesla is too big to fail. That I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but, you know, I think we have to be conscious of the fact that we are weaving this unknown asset that's brand new still onto corporate balance sheets and into the global financial system and that the person that owns a lot of this Bitcoin uh, could yield some power from that. Um, but also, you know, we just have to be careful. This is an unprecedented experiment. It's a brand new asset class, if you want to call it that. And so we have to be mindful and careful in how we regulate it and how we adopt it. And uh, I'm hopeful that Gensler will do that. And I've seen some of the headlines out of the Biden administration um, that it looks like something that they want to tackle. But the people that are out there thinking it's just going to usurp the U.S. dollar, I think, are crazy. Now, let's talk about the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is worth D-I-C-K right now, dick, and will continue to be worth dick. And people say, Bitcoin fixes this. I understand what you're saying. Relax. The problem isn't that I don't understand it. The problem is that I do understand it, and I disagree with you. But the U.S. dollar is going to be worth significantly less going forward because we're printing, you know, more money now, I think, over the last 18 months than we have in something like all of history combined. That's a wonderful little nugget, fun fact, that you don't need to know anything about money at all to know that something is fucked completely to understand that. And so this goes back to what I was starting with at the beginning of the podcast, which is how is this going to end? We're not going to be able to raise enough money to pay for the spending that we are intending on doing. The central bank's balance sheet has just hit, you know, escape velocity. It's gone completely parabolic. We don't produce anything in the country anymore. Somebody is going to call us on our bullshit and on our bluff eventually, or a systemic financial crisis is going to really test what we're made of. I mean, think of what a precarious position we're in now as a result of how we reacted to COVID. We papered over the entire economy and inserted a fake economy in its place thanks to the Federal Reserve, and interest rates are now at zero, and the market is at all-time highs, and the vaccine is all over the place, and we still can't get a discussion about tapering going. So what kind of a precarious position does that leave us in for the next crisis? What if the next crisis happens tomorrow? What if tomorrow Bitcoin goes to 10000 from 
50,000. What would happen? I mean, you would see an enormous drawdown all over the place. You would see margin selling all over the place. And I'm not just talking about a Bitcoin. Assume that the margin selling in Bitcoin's over and people have seen some wealth destruction and Bitcoin just tanks, right? Then what's next? Then all the equities associated with it, all the corporate balance sheets associated with it, all that value just gets sucked out of the system and goes poof. I think now there's over a trillion dollars worth of Bitcoin. So let's say on a 50% drawdown, $500 billion worth of value just goes poof. What was Huang? Huang had like $80 billion, right? And his blow up kind of shook Credit Suisse. It cost some people some jobs. It, you know, there's a lot of questions being asked about that. What happens if $500 billion in crypto assets just went poof overnight? What would happen? And don't tell me it's not possible because nobody fucking knows. Nobody knows. No one knows. Well, it's an open ledger. Everybody has access to it. It's open source and that's the beauty of it. Yeah, but you don't really know. <laughs> you don't really know. If Satoshi wants to come out and say, today's the day that I just hang my big D on the table and call it a day and says, well, I'm Satoshi, the fucking thing was a nice experiment. It doesn't work. I just blew all my shit out. You guys have fun fucking around with this little thing that I created and wrote a white paper about, but I don't really believe in it. Then what happens? Then it gets crushed. Then all of a sudden, all the equities, all the corporate balance sheets, et cetera, all the individual investors that have it, they all get smacked around. So it's possible that something like that happens. So say something like that happens and we have to address an entire other financial crisis on top of the one that we're still addressing even though we're on the ass end of. Folks, I'm obviously not the Federal Reserve Chairman, but let me tell you something. When the NASDAQ fucking doubles off its lows in 18 months and the market goes to all-time highs despite millions of people being unemployed, I think it's time to start fucking tapering, okay? I saw one or two of the Fed governors said, well, yeah, maybe it's time. Like, what gave you the idea? Was it the Fed balance sheet, you know, multiplying several times what it was prior was it the M1 money stock going up in literally a straight line? Was it the market going to all-time highs and continuing to keep its, you know, continuing to enable the wealthy to keep their boot on the neck of people that are fucking earning $10 an hour or $15 an hour? I tell you what, I tip everybody. I've never had so much appreciation for people that fucking drive cabs, that work at the coffee shop, that do the fucking jobs where I know that they're not making that much money because I know how fucking insanely skewed the playing field is continually getting as a result of this insane monetary policy. You know, the fucking Bitcoiners know it too, right? Again, right problem, wrong solution in my opinion. And in my opinion, a lot of them will wind up over in gold. We'll have to see. But they're right about one thing, which is this whole thing is out of control. The whole thing's out of control. So going back to what I say, where does it end? I think it ends in hyperinflation, right? There's one of two things that can happen. We can either default on our debt and tighten things up and try to raise rates, or we just have to try to inflate away the debt and we just have to try to, you know, steady the plane as it is just in a nosedive downward by trying to, you know, keep fucking with these economic indicators, these little variables that we can mess with. And what does that mean? Well, that means that all assets are just going to continue to go way up. 
We're going to see hyperinflation, at least from a nominal standpoint, they're going to go up. You know, in real terms, who the fuck knows what's going to happen? But I can't help but think that that's the way things are going to go. And in that situation, again, I like gold. I like to own gold. I like to own silver. I like the metals. They got the track record. They got the history. They got the commodity use. They got the demand. They're tangible. And they are what central banks hold in reserve, which means... If they have to do a global reboot, which I think they're going to have to, and hopefully I'll have Lawrence Lepard on to talk about this at some point, because uh, if you haven't listened to it, I, I suggest listening to Lawrence Lepard's recent podcast on Palisades Gold Radio, which is another wonderful podcast, um, where he talks about you know what a sovereign debt crisis looks like and really what a global debt crisis looks like. And, uh, and look, we're not going to continue going through history without one country or one central bank making a decisive move. It's going to happen. Remember when the Swiss fucking depegged the franc from whatever like five years ago and the FX markets went fucking bananas? Like those types of events happen. At some point, somebody's going to look at what's going on globally with the economy and they're going to say, this just doesn't work for us anymore. It doesn't. And we don't want to be the last one out. So we're going to be the first one out. Not not any different than Bitcoin or Tesla or Microvision or any other bubble. Not any different. You know, at some point, somebody decides, I've seen enough. I can't possibly stomach it any longer and sleep with a good conscience and tell the people of my respective, you know, city, state, municipality, country, continent, or central bank participants, European Union, whatever, that everything's going to be fine. Because... I looked out the window and things don't look like they're going to be fine. It looks like we're just building problem on top of problem on top of problem on top of bubble on top of bubble on top of bubble. And if we face a global financial crisis now, the Fed's hands are tied. They're tied. I mean, think of how inflationary the stimulus from that would be. And all this money that's been printed over the last, you know, two years as a result of COVID, it's all going to wind up in consumer prices somehow. And let me tell you something else too. When the CPI goes to 4%, 5%, and I feel like it's definitely going to, just know that that means actual inflation is probably like fucking 20% at that point. Because with CPI at 1%, 2%, actual inflation now is like 8% to 10%. So it's going to be way worse than it looks. And, uh, and I think securing those inflation hedges uh, is going to be an important part of any kind of wealth preservation strategy and I wish that I could lay out a complex kind of you know path as to how to navigate this but I'm really just learning along with you guys I mean I would tell you listen to a guy like George Gammon I mean he is uh he knows this stuff a little bit better than I do but what I do like to point out is the fact that I don't think that this is going to last ad infinitum so to circle back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, yes, I have had rose-colored glasses on for the last 18 months as it comes to the stock market and uh, because of that you know, hyperinflationary environment. But today, I do want to return to the idea that this isn't going to last forever. And uh, you know, not unlike what I said about COVID, when I was ranting about COVID early January 2020, I was doing a podcast where nobody wanted to pay attention. I said, coronavirus is going to be a big deal globally, and everybody told me I was fear-mongering. By the way, here we are, you know, 14 months later, and uh, and it's one of the biggest exogenous events to happen in, in decades, all right? So uh, don't want to fucking rub it in, but you can, uh, I think I'm ahead on the scoreboard on that one with you guys. Regardless, what I said then 
was that it's not a problem until you wake up one day and it's a problem. And that's what happened with COVID. We went to bed one night and everything was fine. And we woke up the next morning and all of a sudden it was the lead story. And people were fucking cleaning out toilet paper at their local supermarkets. Doesn't take a lot to throw 700 million idiots into complete hysteria. Or 350 million idiots, however many people there are in this country. Doesn't take a lot. It just takes a suggestion that something might be less than comfortable over the next couple of days. Hey, uh, Marianne, we just want to let you know your particular Starbucks is going to be out of soy milk for the next 48 hours. Well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? I better, I, I better get to the store now. I better buy up all the soy milk at the store now. If I can't have it, I can't have it. What's going to happen to my morning? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to the world? Doesn't take a lot to throw people into a fucking total frenzy, right? And that's what happened with COVID. So we went to bed one night and everything was fine. And we woke up the next morning and everything wasn't fine. And that's what's going to happen with inflation. That's what's going to happen with the market. That's what's going to happen with bubbles on top of bubbles on top of bubbles. And it is a certainty. The only question is when. So I hate to kind of shift the outlook back to doom, but that's the shit I'm on now. You know, this last 18 months was fun. We had a good time. The market rose. I hope everybody made some money, but really it's time to bear down. I mean, it feels like that everybody understands that inflation is going to be a problem now, except the Fed. And I put out a tweet the other day. I'm going to try and find it here. This is what I wrote on May 3rd. Honestly, it feels like not one person in the industry, even the biggest Keynesians and bulls, trust that the Fed understands what it's doing right now. I've never seen so much unanimous agreement that we are on dangerous monetary policy path as now. And that's the truth. And I think anybody is going to tell you that inflation is what the focus is on right now. And let the Fed fuck with the numbers. Let them do what they're going to do to try to make it seem as though it's not a problem. But it's a problem. And everybody knows it. Look at your health insurance bill. Look at the bag of Smart Food 50 you bought. You got fooled. You paid three. You're getting eight ounces and not ten. And there's not enough cheddar cheese on those fucking things anyways. They're not even that good. Just go back and buy the regular. You know? Just go back and buy the regular before they fucked up the works, before they tried to gum up the works. The tide needs to go out. To quote the Joker in Batman, this town needs an enema. This market needs an enema of grandiose proportions, like a Hoover Dam style enema. And uh, and it just needs, you know, the frauds and the, and the hype companies and the SPACs and the the Ross Gerbers just float out to sea, you know, just wash away. That's the beautiful thing about free markets. You know, they handle malinvestment. They handle bad decisions. They correct, uh, you know, the people that need to be corrected. And they just wash out. Bye. Fucking see ya. That's what we need. And that is what I think we're in store for. So what I'm focusing on, inflation, I think... You should go back and watch the video that I did a couple of uh, months ago. And this video I re-upped on my Twitter a couple of weeks ago. It is called, ready for this? Come on, idiot. It's called Tesla and Bitcoin, the anatomy of bubbles bursting. And it's on my YouTube page, uh, which has not been canceled yet, which is fantastic. 
So if you want to check it out, Tesla and Bitcoin, the anatomy of bubbles bursting, where basically I talked about what it looks like when you hit a top in bubbles and why that's inevitable. And it's not just inevitable, I think, for those two assets, but I think it's inevitable for the market in general. So that was posted February 22nd, 2021. Tesla had a $800 billion market cap and Bitcoin was at $57,532.74. So both of those prices are now lower from, from where I posted that. I'm not saying I called the blow off top, but I'm just trying to make a point that you know it's been two months and that's kind of been dead money since then. But there is no doubt about it. Somebody will buy the top in both of those things. It always happens. Every equity that's ever existed is always gonna have an all-time high. It may have happened already and it may not happen for a thousand years from now. But at some point, somebody will buy the high just as somebody will buy the low. And even in the skewed system that the Fed has taken rocket fuel and poured it on the market and lit a fire under its ass so that it only goes in one direction and that's up and to the right, the same way that we've seen it over the last 150 years and may continue to see it due to hyperinflation. No matter what, somebody's always going to buy the top. And if you're not buying the top in nominal terms, you might have bought the top in real terms. You might have bought the top in the market as it's valued by gold. Or if you're a Bitcoiner, the market valued in Bitcoin. You may have bought the top in a particular equity versus oil or versus some type of finite commodity, however you want to measure it. But in real terms and in nominal terms, somebody always buys the top. And so Huang's blow up. All these moron asset managers that are out there that are just, I mean, as George Carlin would say, dumber than a second coat of paint. The shit that comes out of these people's mouths and that they post on their Twitter and that they put in their slide decks is mind numbing. I need a fucking lobotomy. I say that like every day. I can't keep reading it, you know, but all those people, they're just going to wash away at some point and it will happen. It always happens. And by the way, it's going to be bigger than we think, and it's going to be a bigger problem than we think. So start thinking about that now. And if it's not a market crash in nominal terms, it's going to be a market crash in real terms, which means a hyperinflation problem, which means the market goes to 100000 but also your coffee costs you $100. Have a nice fucking morning waking up and dealing with that. And by the way, I don't know if I told you, Marianne, but the Starbucks is out of fucking soy milk for the next 48 hours. <laughs> Buy up all the toilet paper, John. Throw it in the back of the electric vehicle being powered by electricity that's being generated by a giant coal power plant. Please. (laughs) All right, fools. I got to have Lawrence Lepard on over the next couple of days. If you don't know who he is, check out his interview on Palisades Gold Radio, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And if you're the Palisades Gold Radio guy and you listen to this, which I'm sure you don't, I'd love to come on sometime. You're like one of my favorite podcasts. Little 30-minute spurts of just uh, wonderful content if you're into gold and silver, if you're a metals person, if you're a doomsday sayer, etc. But listen, the fact of the matter is, folks, I have other things to do today aside from sitting here screaming into a microphone for your uh, listening and viewing pleasure. Having said that, thank you very much for my continued uh, patrons. You guys are the shit. You guys are pretty much the only reason I keep doing the podcast. I appreciate your support. Um, You guys that have been supporting me for a while means a lot to me. The podcast has... uh, Apparently, it's done well. I don't really care, but uh, apparently, it's done well. Let's see. We got 3.2 million downloads uh, on uh, Podbean and other platforms. And then on YouTube, we have... I guess a good good day to fucking toot my own horn, which I never do. 
On YouTube, we have... Oh, we just passed a million views on YouTube. So how about that? So we got 4.2 million views. And when you think about that, that is a lot of people clicking the play button a lot of times, which is very interesting, seeing as how I'm not really producing anything of value. It could be an interesting experiment in human psychology for somebody who wants to take that on as their doctorate thesis. My doctorate thesis was, how do you drink six paps pounders in six minutes or less that you buy from Jake's? You know, Jake's in Westchester used to be able to buy $5 it was $5 for a fucking six-pack of, of Pabst Pounders. So you could buy six Pabst Pounders for five bucks. And then if you didn't have $5, which was like often the problem as a college student, you could buy Peels. Peels Pounders came in at four. The $4 price point for six 16-ounce fucking beer. You'd be 100 ounces of beer for $4. That is a great deal. See, that's what the free market provides. Yes, it tastes like donkey piss mixed with kerosene, but still, sometimes you only have $4 and not 5 The free market works. You see, folks, Peels Pounders are there for a reason because there is a price point a little bit lower than that. And by the way, if you don't have 4 you could just buy the Bud 40, I think, for like $3 or $2. Different price points, different brands, different qualities, consumer selection, Capitalism is a beautiful thing. Free markets are a beautiful thing. I've completely gone off the rails today and have no clue what I'm talking about. With that being said, I hope you all have a wonderful day and I am the fuck out of here. Peace.